welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest host today is Paul Gandy, and I'm your host, Monica Hadley. I've asked Paul to join us today because in addition to being my lifelong friend and colleague, he is um, a graduate from Harvard in African American Studies and an attorney uh, graduating from UT Law School in Austin. And so I thought he would, uh, that, that this book that we're talking about today would have some meaning to him. Welcome, Paul, as co-host. Thank you, Monica. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> and we have two guests today, and they are H.H. H. Leonard's and Dr. LaDonna Boyd. And H.H. H. Leonard's is the author of um, Rosa Parks' Beyond the Bus, Life Lessons and Leadership. And she is the founder and chair of the O Street Museum Foundation headquartered in Washington, D.C., and the mansion on O Street where Mrs. Rosa Parks called her home away from home for the last decade of her life. She established the mansion in 1980 to provide a unique and eclectic forum where clients learn from one another and foster the development of diversity, the creative process, and the human spirit. What a wonderful, um, what a wonderful thing to do. And Dr. LaDonna Boyd is the publisher of this book, and she is president and CEO of R.H. Boyd Publishing, um, is shaping and leading this company to broaden its scope and offerings for modern needs. And the uh, she has completed her doctoral studies at Pepperdine University, and she's a graduate of Spelman College with a bachelor's degree in economics and Tennessee State University with an MBA and a concentration in finance and so many other credentials. And this publishing company is a um, was founded by formerly enslaved Dr. Richard Henry Boyd and was, I think, mostly a textbook publishing company until quite recently. So we'll get to talk about both of those th things. Welcome to Writers Voices, H, and what do we? What do you want us to call you, Dr. Boyd? That, that is fine. That, that is fine. Me. Okay. <laughs> well, Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to share with you. So... Paul, why don't you just jump right in? Oh, thanks, Monica. H, could you tell us why you wrote the book, how it came about? A little bit about that, please. I was um, initially asked to write the book by the Library of Congress in 2019. And when they were going through her papers, they found out about our close association came to me when um, the city dedicated the O Museum and the Mansion historic African American Trail. And um, they asked me to, to write a book. I never had thought about it before um, because when Mrs. Parks initially came to me, I was asked never to talk about her time with me. That it, and they did not want the press to know she was staying with us. So even after she passed in 2005, I kept that she never told anybody. Um, so when the Library of Congress came to me, I thought, God's telling me I need to write this book. Because I'm so glad that I did, because I did not realize until I wrote it how 
to change my life and impacted me so deeply. Everything I've ever written, everything I've ever done was really um, magnified by that. Yes, Agent. Who who is Rosa Parks? Could you give us a little history lesson about who she is and her importance? Well, as a historian, you're probably better qualified to answer that than I am. I have such great respect for um, historians. I'm um, my story is not a history lesson. It's more about talking about her soul and her spirit and the things that she did that people don't know. She um, really is, was the seminal point of starting the civil rights movement, and there's so many layers to that story. That's what she's known for. But beyond the bus is telling people that don't know about her and don't know the historical importance of what she's done, um, bringing it to light. I know in your book, H, you refer to Mrs. Parks as not only the mother of the civil rights movement, but the grandmother of the civil rights movement as well. There's a long list in your book, a long list of accomplishments. Not just a fateful day in December 1955, and she didn't give up her seat on that Montgomery bus. And after that, that event. Right. Um, Anna Hageman, who was the co-founder or the, even credit for co-founding now, wrote in her book that it was really Mrs. Parks that started now. Mrs. Parks was a very humble woman and felt that it was important that now stand on own two feet and not be part of her legacy. So um, she never got the public acknowledgement for helping to start with now. But back in 1930, to give you an example, she was at her own peril documenting rape victims, both men and women, in Alabama. That courage is quite extraordinary. What she did on that bus was really just a continuation of activism that she had been practicing for a long time. Exactly. And she also told me that if she had looked up when she got on the bus, she would never have taken that particular bus because she was petrified of the bus driver. Money in her purse, and that she walked up the stairs and started to put the money and looked up and was horrified. Um, But she was on the bus. She did not get off, and um, she was shaking when she saw who it was. Yeah, you said in your book you noted that her story was really, in many ways, you felt traced the history of all African American women. Exactly. Exactly. Can you say more about that? Um, What people, a lot of people don't know about, um, and it's not taught in the history books, but when women sat on buses late at night and were alone. They were taken to the end of the line, and not just the bus driver, but the police was there to rape these women. So there was a a lot of horrific things that happened historically. Dr. Boyd, could you tell us a bit about the editing process that you follow, or your your, your publishing company following in, in preparing this book? 
No, oh, absolutely. Um, that's definitely an interesting question. Uh, and I think this this story was an easy one for us to agree to tell. It's something that's really fascinating. And we wanted to make sure that we continue to tell the story and the narrative of what Mrs. Parks did and the wisdom that um, she and others gleaned from her actions, not only that day, but throughout the course of her lifetime. So when we met with uh, Ms. Leonard, uh, she'd already... Um, you know, written most of the story, most of this narrative down. And so for us just to have the opportunity to read it and, uh, you know, make very, very minor um, adjustments to to the work itself so that we can maintain the authenticity of the story being told. So I want to ask you, have you written other books? I've written um, spiritual books, but I have not... Um, and I've, I've been writing since I've been four years old, but they've been more journals for myself. And when Mrs. Parks moved here, I started writing them down in earnest. And when I wrote this book, I realized that everything that I wrote from the moment she moved in till now has really been channeled through her and from her. So sometimes in life, you don't realize how people affect you until you do take that time to write about it. Mm -hmm. Like so many things about my parents that they're unfortunately not alive that I now understand how I would have loved the opportunity to have with them. I didn't know how deeply they were embedded in my life also. So it was a (laughs) There are so many, your story, your, your book, to me, seems like it was written in terms of life's lessons that perhaps you learned through your interaction, your time with Mrs. Parks and through her own experiences. And there's so many wonderful experiences. What an extraordinary life she lived that's reflected in your, in your, in your writing. Uh, just, just for example, can you tell us a little about the story of Jane Gunther? So Jane is still alive. She's in her late 80s. She's living in Georgia now, and she was on the bus that Mrs. Parks was on. She was a a teenager. She was pregnant. She was on the bus to visit her husband at the military base in Montgomery when the altercation happened. She did not know better, and when Mrs. Parks was asked to move for somebody else was Um, Immediately, um, a gun came out and told, don't move. And what was interesting is years later, Mrs. Guttner wrote wrote a letter to Mrs. Parks apologizing for what had happened, and they became very close pen pals and friends, and all of her godchildren um, uh, were the godmother was Mrs. Parks. Wow. So they kept very close, and they and when Mrs. Parks would visit me, Mrs. Gutner would come up and visit, and she still visits here every February 14th, and and gives a talk about what it was like to be on the bus with Mrs. Parks. Oh, yeah, that was an interesting story. She, yeah, Mrs. Gunther, Jane was sitting in the part of the bus that reserved only for white people, and she was a wife of a of a, an Air Force man who was stationed there in a nearby Air Force base. Didn't know the culture, the customs, or the 
the, the, the segregation as it was in Alabama. And so when Mrs. Parks got on the bus, she was willing to give up her seat, but she was told not to. And she feared for her, she feared for her safety. And the thing, interesting thing is that Mrs. Parks actually didn't sit in the whites-only section. She sat in the section that was partitioned for African-Americans at the time, but she sat in the front row or the very front of the bus that was allowed at that time for her. So it, the, the story has some layers to it that um, that only a read of the book gives you a taste of that makes it even more interesting. Thank you. Yeah. So, H, tell us a little bit about um, how Rosa Parks came to live at the mansion. When I moved in and created the space with no money, no business background, no art background, on February 14th, 1980, we immediately started with a Heroes and Artists in Residence program where we put people up here for free. And I got a call uh, by somebody I didn't know telling me that Mrs. Park had just been uh, brutally accosted in her home in Detroit and she was in the hospital. They didn't know when she would get out, but they would never go back to her home again. She had no money. If they could find her a free flight to Washington, could she stay with me? And I didn't know who she was. I was a very bad student. Um, but the tone of his voice and listening to him to talk, I had to say the words yes. And... That's how she came to live with us. I didn't know until recently that one of the reasons that she stayed with me was because they really wanted her privacy. They did not want anyone to know she was staying with me, especially during the healing process. She was so badly accosted that her pacemaker was dislodged. She was also 81 years old, um, and she was emotionally and physically wounded deeply. So it took her quite some time to heal emotionally and physically. She wanted to do that privately, but as she always did when she had horrible things happen to her, she would, would withdraw into herself and become stronger from it and come out with extraordinary strength and fortitude. So the last 10 years of her life were probably some of the most strongest years. Uh, it was amazing to watch her in action mm-hmm. and just to be her friend and be by her side and be her caretaker also. Well, at some point it must, it wasn't a secret that she was living with you because you had a lot of people come visit her there. It was a secret as far as the press was concerned. Ah. It was a secret as far as my commitment not to tell anybody. And, yes, we had a lot of her friends, and, yes, she did do her birthday parties here. And once a month she did uh, have gospel brunches here in her honor, um, which were the public did come to. But as far as, um, you know, it's, I don't know what the words are. I... um, didn't tell anybody just because we were friends Hmm. and we have a privacy policy also so if the press calls and asks if someone from the rolling stones for example the eagles are staying here and they are we would always say no (laughs) so that they could be themselves here and they and that's why 
people love staying with us because they can disappear. Well, your your story of how you started that is amazing just in and of itself. You know, you said you had no money, no background. What, why did you do it? I wanted to help my country. And I, the, coming from Indiana, I thought I'm going to go join the Marines. It was the first year that women were allowed in the military and go help my country in Vietnam. And my best friend and I from high school went to sign up. And fortunately, they lost my paperwork three times. So I told um, told my best friend I was coming to Washington to help my country. And she said, I'm going to go back to the Marines and tell them one last time that my father is in the Marines and maybe they'll let me in, which they did. And um, she subsequently told me that, thank God I didn't go. I would still be in a mental hospital if I had. But I came here to help my country and was dismayed that I didn't meet anyone that wanted to help theirs. It was all about me, me, me. What can you do for me? And so I thought maybe if I could create a space where it's filled with music and kindness and art and conversation, people would remember who they really were, refocus and go out in the world and help people. So that was really the the start of it. When I moved in, I owned nothing. I owned probably 30 books. (laughs) <laughs> I'm an avid reader, and I had records. I love music, um, and I slept on the floor. Wow. And from that, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about what, what it is now. Uh, it's a 110-room room ma- mansion. Everything that's here is donated to it, so it's, it's got heart. Um, it's eclectic. It's focused on the creative spirit. And it's, it's focused on the lessons that I learned from Mrs. Parks. Um, when something bad happens to you and you, you fall to the ground, stand up, reach out, help other people. Other, helping other people is more important than helping yourself. And by helping other people, you help yourself. So when she documented the rape victims in Georgia, she was helping herself survive. That is the extraordinary heart of an extraordinary woman. And after she had been so badly accosted in Detroit, she spent the last 10 years of her life talking to soldiers about PTSD and how she was surviving from that. Her brother had fought in the military in the Second World War and had come back with PTSD, but she didn't understand what it was until that incident. You know, H. If, if 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 Mrs. Parks could be called the mother of the civil rights movement, and I think rightly so, there's another woman that you spoke of and wrote of with we had a relationship with Mrs. Parks in the book that deserves, I think, similar recognition. And that would be Emmett Till's mother. Yes. Could you tell oh us about, my goodness. Yes. Could you tell us about how that relationship came to be? Who, first of all, who is she? Who was she? And how that relationship came about, came about, what it was. It it came about because Mrs. Park, Emmett Till had just been murdered. And the, his mother, fortunately, allowed the press to show pictures of him. Mrs. Park was so upset. She said, even when she came with me, sometimes she closed her eyes and still see Emmett Till. It, this is a picture that was... Photo that went worldwide, worldwide, yes. and, and and as with her, 
stance in the bus, this also precipitated, uh, you can very clearly, the civil, what we call the civil rights movement. Yes. But she said that she didn't have the strength when she was ordered by this brutal bus driver. So she closed her eyes and prayed. And it was Emmett Till's photograph that kept her seated and refusing to move. After, um, she did not know his mother, but after, um, the, and while the Montgomery bus strike was going on, Mrs. Parks wrote many letters to Mrs. Till. And through that correspondence, they became close friends. And she was one of her closest friends. And it was wonderful when Mrs. Uh, Mobley visited because she would stay in the country room, which was a flight up from Mrs. Parks, but there was an elevator. And the two of them would um, sit together on Mrs. Mobley's balcony, looking out on the front of the old museum and the mansion. It was a tree-lined street. And they would hold hands for hours on the little balcony. And I would serve them tea and cookies in the afternoon. But they had a precious, kind, beautiful relationship, um, a very special bond. Each woman gave the other strength to survive. Absolutely. Dr. Boyd, I know you spoke to, I know your, your publishing house has a mission and one of your mission, and, and this, I want to relate to this book if I can and ask you a more general question, but you, you, you mentioned, you noted the importance of filling in the gaps in the Rosa Parks story. Mm-hmm. That are missing that are missing from the popular narratives and history books. Um, I see this book. I think you, I would think you'd be pleased with this book as being just exact doing exactly that. Absolutely, yes. It's great to, to learn more about that personal side uh, from Miss Leonard's perspective. And one of my you know favorite things to learn about the book. Um, so I love fashion, and this parks always looked very pristine, and it talks about her love of fashion and shoes and just always being very poised as well, which you can obviously see that in the, the imagery that's reflected of her, but then just to hear, like, kind of her personal, um, I don't know, maybe quirks for a better, <laughs> for lack of a better term, uh, was very endearing, and uh, just so many fascinating things that we get to witness through the words and the chapters, and, and something that our organization is very proud of. Sure, and this is step back a moment. You you also your 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 company has a long term vision. You have a long term vision. You're leading this publishing house. Can you talk about what is that long term vision? Maybe give us some idea of projects and the works that are yet to come. Sure. Well, the company was founded in 1896 by my great-great-grand. So five generations later, we still uphold the mission of making sure that we're providing a place to the African-American experience. Um, traditionally, we've done that through the context of faith. And so, um, and we've done other genres as well, but now really having a target focus on expanding outside of just the walls of the church, telling stories that pertain to lifestyle and history and education and, uh, you know, STEM research and, and all of those fascinating things that really make up the narrative of the, the black experience. And it could be from different perspectives, um, the, uh, the books that we produce or the ones that we sell from other publishers as well. Like they're very diverse in nature as well. So it's something, again, that we are um, very proud of. 
are excited from the new project. Um, I don't necessarily want to disclose a lot right now, but the listeners can certainly um, check in on our website, which is rhboy.com. So most of our content before was focused on um, religious materials and even still to do a, mostly curriculum titles. We do hymnals, we do Bibles. But in addition to that, we also for fiction, fiction. Uh, we have quite a few offerings for children as well. And we also have a full line of apparel too. So lots of things that we're doing um, that tie both our past, present, and things we're aspiring to do in the future as well. And how did your, you say it was your great, great, great grandfather? Great, great. Great, great grandfather. How, how did he start this? Well, he started it. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, perfect. So he started it because he um, was in ministry, of course. He was a pastor, worked to plant churches throughout the Southeast, and he was working with the various conventions, and they really needed a publishing and printing arm. Uh, of course, at that time, most of the materials that they were getting were coming from uh, the white perspective. So he wanted to give African Americans the opportunity to have a black voice heard in faith and education. So that was how and, and why he started the organization. Of course, what's so interesting is obviously at that time and before that, you could literally be killed because you were literate. Literacy mm-hmm. was for people of color. So to be born in that context and then to be able to start being focused on storytelling and literacy and, and using the written word um, that's still around 125 plus years later is, how are you adjusting to? Well, maybe you could comment. I'm very interested in your comment. If have have the marketplace changed mm-hmm. in terms of where people read? They read online. They read with their device. They read an actual book. Have you found in your in marketing that that, that people are reading or taking in this content in ways different than they were, say, a decade ago, for example. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the medium's changed, but the message doesn't necessarily change. So we do provide digital resources, and people can buy uh, our products from our website, rhboy.com, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, et cetera, so many other places where they can interact with our content. Um, so we make sure that we provide it um, – Printed, which is still the most popular version, as well as ebooks, and we have a pretty robust YouTube channel as well, which we do our digital cricket lessons, and then also on Instagram and Twitter. Lots of ways for people to. What is your relationship, your publishing house? What relationship do you have with the African American Church? How did you discover to be Oh well, that's where we were birthed from is the black church. So we do work with thousands of churches and organizations across the country and even a few international as well um, to provide their curriculum needs as well as, again, hymnals, Bibles, their community care and needs as well. So that is still the root of our organization. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and our guest host today, Paul Gandy, and our guests, Dr. LaDonna Boyd from RH 
Boyd Publishing and H.H. Leonard's author of Rosa Parks, Beyond the Bus, Life, Lessons, and Leadership. I know, I know your book is quite current in that you noted in one of its passages that there's even a challenge today, let alone teaching this history, there's even a challenge whether or not this history, not that it's ignored, but that it should be that it should be purposely ignored and not taught is a challenge in that regard. Have, uh, can you tell us about that? I, I wonder if you could comment more on that particular observation you made in your book. If history is not taught accurately, we can never have freedom and equality. It is so important that at every opportunity, those who know about it speak out with love in their heart. Mrs. Parks would tell me things that I didn't understand until the past few years that the laws, people were hiding behind laws and not paying attention to changing people's hearts. And if we didn't spend the time to change people's hearts, the laws would change. And that's exactly what is happening now. It's very frightening. So now, even more than ever, telling history the way it was, but also telling history from a perspective of love is even more important. Mrs. Parks went around the world talking to people. It didn't matter how many people she met with. She felt that if people could hear her speak or meet her personally, that maybe they wouldn't live with fear in their hearts which is where hate comes from. It's very powerful. Very powerful. H, could you read a little bit from the book for us? Yes. Great. I did not realize until I finished writing this book how much Mrs. Parks taught me how we can all change the trajectory of divisiveness that is happening right now. There are many lessons I talk about in my book, but the underlying foundation of what she gently taught me is about having faith in yourself to do the hard work to change the hearts and minds of those you meet, not just through your words, but by your exemplary example. Mrs. Parks led an exemplary life because she wanted no one to get in the way of her message. She was assaulted throughout her life, both physically and emotionally, but she never used this as an excuse to stop living, nor did she allow anything to defeat her spirit. She believed that there are hidden blessings in everything God gives, that being a giving person means you become more open, more giving to others, that pain and fear are illusions of choice. It's simple, she would always say. When you fall down, you get up. Mrs. Parks once told me, I can't change what is inside someone. That's something they have to do themselves. Living according to this principle, she let go and forgave everyone she loved. She used the pain she felt throughout her life as a motivator. She chose to champion constructive change in our justice system. Mrs. Parks didn't have categories for people because she was an amalgam of all of them. 
for GMA was white, black, and Native American, and female. She didn't quite fit anywhere, and as such, that's why she understood the plight of equality and freedom and could connect with so many different groups of people. With every fiber of her essence and reality, he believed love is all that matters, and that is what she fought for. Where there's love, equality and understanding follows, she would say, and as important, forgiveness, hope, and reconciliation. By profession, Mrs. Parks was a seamstress. Her stitching was delicate and precise. She made beautiful clothes. But in the bigger picture, she sewed pieces of people's lives together throughout the world and lifted them up with tenacity, hope, and pure love. She was a humble, straightforward person. During her lifetime, she encountered many who either persecuted her or who took advantage and even disregarded who she was for reasons only known to themselves. She was determined to teach love, forgiveness, and compassion at every event and private meeting she attended. She also accepted any and all invitations to speak because she believed this was the only way to rid the world of prejudice. If people met her, they would not fear her. And of course, whenever she could, she told people of every age, get an education, continue to educate yourself. Through my glorious decade with the humble and authentic Mrs. Parks, she taught the wisdom of letting go of ego. Only then, she believed, can you accomplish what every person should strive to achieve, love and unity. Mrs. Parks taught whatever you do, think positively and be concerned about other people. She continually taught what the Bible teaches, to look at everything in terms of not succumbing to what that which will destroy your physical and mental health. I spent countless hours at Mrs. Parks listening to her, watching her, and hearing stories about her from her inner cadre of colleagues and friends who also stayed with me. She was adamant that association with people of any group that excluded others was discriminatory. Mrs. Parks did not see color although she was not colorblind. She told me over and over again to forgive everyone everything, but she did not forget. She understood that it was important to be proud of your heritage and yes, celebrate your color, but that no one should be judged by their color. She wrote in her book, Dear Mrs. Park, the dialogue with today's youth, justice and truth do not be colored. She was all about justice and truth not just to make the laws equitable, but to teach people who met her that they had to approach this concept with love in their hearts, not fear. She was proud of her DNA, but deeply affected by discrimination all of her life, not just from white people, but black people, Native Americans, and yes, women. She also had to balance the ugly truth that her DNA was the result of her ancestors having been raped. But instead of ever complaining or ever growing bitter, Mrs. Parks chose to use the violence that produced her and happened to her and the continual discrimination against her to document rape victims from the 1930s on and fight for human dignity of all races, creeds, and religions. She went deeper in her book, Dear Mrs. Parks, writing, the younger generations must learn from us that love knows no color. 
They must learn from us that respect knows no color. They must understand that we are all created by the same God who created all of us in his image. She believed that no progress could be made until no one saw color or grouped people by age or separated people by religion or gender affiliation and stopped judging others by the hierarchy of their employment. One Sunday afternoon, after we were enjoying tea and cookies after church, Mrs. Parks read to me what she had been writing and later put into her book, Dear Mrs. Parks, a dialogue with today's youth. Her voice was gentle, but her message seared my soul. The important thing to remember is that when people try to hurt us or do mean things to us, God is with us. God gives us the strength to overcome whatever is bad in life, and he gives us the ability to make it better. There Defining moments for each having Mrs. Parks read to me this was one of my defining moments. I realized as Mrs. Park was gently teaching me that no matter what happens to you, it is supposed to occur at that particular moment to teach you, to help you let go of your ego and think only about others. You can be quiet, but in your quest, you must believe you can move mountains. Thank you, H. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And, you know, it's interesting reading that again. I feel her. <laughs> I don't know how to talk it in words. What is it that you miss most about her? Holding hands. Feeling the moment, sometimes you just don't need words. And she taught me that so much. And um, you said in one of the one of your one of your quotes. I think you said this more than once in the book in different iterations. One of the favorite things she used to say, I believe, is each person must live as a model for others. Yes. And it's a lesson many people should listen to. I know many times she would be upset when friends would behave in um, a manner that would hurt their family and hurt our country. And she would meet with them and have frank conversations. And sometimes they would listen and sometimes they would not. Um, But you look at Queen Elizabeth as a model of strength and fortitude she didn't allow anything willingly to get in the way of, of her position because the press can be vicious. She, Mrs. Parks was a card-carrying Black Panther. She was one of the few people that the FBI did not investigate because she led an exemplary life. It was behind the scenes that she was uh, did what she needed to do. She didn't do it for publicity's sake. She did it for purpose's sake. Oh, you're absolutely right. She the Congressional Medal of Freedom, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, she was honored by presidents, by popes. She lay at state, a state funeral in the United States, which I understand was the first and only first funeral for an African-American woman. So she was lay in state at the time where President Bush and his wife honored her. It was an extraordinary model of 
follow. Um, it's how I'd live my life, and it, it could be part of why we bonded so closely. The team around her um, also were not driven by money. They were driven by purpose. And she's an example of what you can do in this country. You can, without money, start a movement. You can sustain it without money and make it successful. If you live with love in your heart, you live an exemplary life, so no one can use anything that you ever do against you at any time. Uh, you get knocked down, which is what life is unfortunately about sometimes. You stand up, pick yourself off, forgive everyone everything, forgive yourself, and move on. And and with that, she stands up often on her own by herself, but also because she lives the life she can, that phone call from time to time that makes all the difference. H, how did Mrs. Parks come to join First Lady Hillary Clinton at President Clinton's State of the Union address? It was just after Monica Lewinsky situation. No one clapped. It was televised. Um, everyone sat there, no matter what President Clinton said, no matter what his plan was. It was an extraordinary speech. Everyone just sat there. And then he looked up to his wife, introduced Mrs. Parks, and everyone stood up for what seemed to be to be 15 minutes. I'm not sure exactly what the timing was, and just roared with um, applause. Afterwards, when we were um, at the O Museum, I asked Mrs. Parks what that was like for her because I said it was extraordinary for me to see and experience. She must have been so proud. How did it, how did, how was she feeling? And she never answered anything quickly, but she thought, and it was about three, four minutes before she responded, I am so happy I helped my country. That response is who she was from the inside, the outside, in and outside in, it was always about a bigger calling. Absolutely. Another fascinating story is how Mrs. Park's personal papers found their way to the Library of Congress. I believe Howard Pitt was involved. I'm one of the most investors in America, if not the world. About that. Well, he's a saint in my book um, because her the moment she died, her. Um, Brothers' children sued her estate, thinking there was a lot of money, and there wasn't any. And um, the long and the short of it is uh, they started putting things up on eBay, which is horrific, and Mrs. Parks Institute got an injunction. And then part of the um, courts in Detroit, it's an incredible story. Please read my book because it goes much deeper. But the um, court said that if they got X million of dollars, um, it would be shared X, Y, and Z ways, and um, Mr. Buffett heard about it. He purchased the collection, and he donated more money, gave it to the Library of Congress to curate everything, um, which is extraordinary. And it, it, Mrs. Parks did not at any time think she was important enough to have gone to the Library of Congress to give her um incredible history too. So um, God provides, but it took 10 years to have that happen. 
And now everybody can go to the Library of Congress. It's in five or six museums now in a traveling show. And if you ever wrote a letter to Mrs. Parks, she kept everything left one of them. <laughs> uh, and you can go see your letter in the Library of Congress. <laughs> That's amazing. It is amazing. How did you connect with Dr. Boyd and her company? It was another meant to happen. She was very modest when she talked about her publishing company because they are quite extraordinary um, to work with. They they did play a big part in editing my book because they're so extraordinary and modest and humble. Um, but they're just a joy to work with. And it was the perfect publisher for Mrs. Parks because of their history. Um, and I... One of the reasons I wish Mrs. Parks was still alive today was because she would love to meet everyone that works at their company. And she would go into their factory where they make the books in Nashville and, and greet everyone that was printing their books and their magazines because she uh, wanted to meet everybody that made things happen. <laughs> she really did. And, and uh, what, she really sounds yeah. like and just – extraordinary, humble, and, and friendly person. Yes. Yes. When we would go to the White House together, she would spend time with the people at the door, the guards, the, the people in the restroom that were cleaning the restroom. She would talk to the waiters at the tables. She would go around and talk to everybody and then remember that she was supposed to be talking with the president. <laughs> you, your book, you mentioned in your book, of course, there and all these wonderful stories, there are lessons she taught you. And a couple of the lessons stand, many of the lessons stand out to me, but one I just want to have you comment on uh, in the time we have remaining, H. She, you noted she said, love is all that matters. Of course, you spoke about that at some length. But also she said, economic freedom ends racism. Did you talk about that? Yes. Um. There was an incident at the house where some of our neighbors complained that people of another color were breaking in. It was at Mrs. Park's 87th birthday party here. Um, and when the police came to the door, there were five police cars. Um, and they came in and, and met Mrs. Parks. They were thrilled to meet Mrs. Parks. I was embarrassed by the incident and by our neighbor having called the police 200 times. Um, and the people that were at her party were in their 80s. They had pillbox hats on and white gloves. It was a very proper um, gospel brunch and birthday party. But I apologized to her after, and she said, oh, dear, it was fine. I got to meet the police. They were so nice. <laughs> and you have to understand that the people that are racist, if we buy their house when they move, that's what helps to create parity um it helped you know and that education about this is so important everybody that was here at my party will talk about this and go talk about economic parity and how important it is it's okay and i will move into that house when you buy it because i know you will and, and? what's interesting <laughs> is the racist neighbors um came to us first and asked us to buy their house and we did, and it's um, now the Rosa Parks Safe House. And one of the places that we put people in need 
give them a respite and a sanctuary to rest the weary soul and recuperate and go out when they leave and conquer the world. Dr. Boyd, is economic parity and economic justice something that your company is is um, involved with? Absolutely. It's something that's important. I think economics is the background of every culture society. We certainly see disparities, you know, from one end to the other. So we certainly want to make sure that we can do our part. Um, one of the things we do through the company, we have an endowment program provides scholarships and grants to serve HBCU students and community organizations. And then, interestingly enough, our eight boys, who was my great-great-grandfather and who our company ambassador, he was also one of the main founders of Citizens Bank here in Nashville, which is now the oldest Black-owned financial institution in the country. So our founder had their right eye understanding um, economic development and prosperity can really help did you always know that you were going to work in the family business? No, no I don't <laughs> think. Um, I don't know if we always kind of know our journey or what lies ahead. So, no, when I was little, like, I never even thought about it. I, I like being a kid, if you will. So, <laughs> um, so it was after uh, college, and then I came back to Nashville, what was supposed to be very briefly, for grad school. And... Um, you know, started working here just kind of part-time and getting to learn the business. And then my father was preparing for retirement. So uh, kind of long story short, um, that that's how it all came about. <laughs> and you've never looked back? No. <laughs> that's a cool story. If I can say, I know we don't have much time. I just want to, other lessons, keep it simple, measure your words with grace, live an exemplary life. But this one I would like you to comment on also. You, you, you noted the lesson she taught you. Education is the path to a better life, but education takes on different forms for different people. That's an interesting lesson. Well, she um, didn't graduate from high school until her 20s. She kept on having to drop out because she had to care for her family and earn a living wage. Um, and where she learned was a one-room schoolhouse because children in the South were not allowed to go to school past the third grade for boys and the fifth grade for school, for uh, girls. So it was a unusual school that she was allowed to go to. Um, but they were all ages, and they took care of each other. And when her husband passed and her brother passed within months of each other, she went into seclusion again. Um, she checked her and her mother into a nursing home because she didn't feel she was uh, able to care for herself. And, and when she emotionally got stronger, she came out and started the Rosen Raymond Parks Institute in Detroit, focused on teaching kids in the inner city a way of life through um, work whether it was in the arts or learning how to use computers or learning how to fix cars. She, um, she wanted to give them away or becoming a, a seamstress that they could train to fend for their families. She also, with computers at the age of um, nine, uh, 86, learned how to use computers and, and, um, and felt that you can learn 
in many ways that you didn't necessarily have to go to school, but it was important to continue to educate. When she was 87, she went to school to learn how to swim. She used that as an example to tell people that you can do things at any time, but especially the swimming was important because as a child, she wasn't allowed to swim or learn to swim because whites did not allow blacks, even in their lakes, that it was a white lake or a white river, let alone their swimming pool. Wow. That's really, that's really incredible learning to swim at that age. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you really, mean- so she, she, whenever she said something, whenever she taught something, she didn't just speak it, she did it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's such an important lesson. If you think about it, just do it. Say the words, yes. You can open doors of opportunity for yourself by saying the words, yes. I mean, uh, Mrs. Parks was a child uh, in her school. She wasn't allowed to go to the, only, only go to the third grade and boys to the fifth grade. Was that for all children in the South area? Uh, boys were third grade and girls were fifth grade. Okay. They Was that for all children? Black children. Others could go. Others could go on. Yeah. That's what I yeah. thought. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. Wow! Yeah. Wow! Yeah. I have one last wow, uh, if I have time for it. Sure. Um. So when she was at her uh, Mrs. White school in the South, and she was uh, maybe ten years old. The uh, Mr. Mr. Rosenwald from, from Sears and Roebuck, who created all this, uh, 40%, I think, of the schools for black children in the South, paid for them, came to her school. And he talked to the school, and he told them that Roebuck, Sears and Roebuck, was black. And it shocked everybody. But Mrs. Park said that simple fact of him coming to speak to us and telling us that gave me hope that we could all better ourselves. Wow. And that story is not told. No, it's not. It's not. Well, I want to and- thank you so much for being with us today. I know we're, we're um, running out of time, we, but I would like to give you both the opportunity to, um, to say some closing words. So, Dr. Boyd, would you like to go first? I want to say thank you again for the opportunity, certainly, um, very proud they were able to tell this story. And again, for any of the uh, listeners who want to learn more about our company, you can visit our website, www.rhboy.com. Or you can check us out on social media, and our handle is at rhboyco. Thank you. Thank you. And H, it was just so such a pleasure to hear these personal stories about someone whom we've only just read about in the history books up till now. Um, I want to thank you again for, for joining us today. Uh, Monica, you've been awesome, even with the audio difficulties. So thank you for being there. And Paul, your questions were amazing. I sincerely look, hope that we can all keep in touch. And it's especially important that you gave me this opportunity to, to speak about the heart and soul of Mrs. Park. So I greatly appreciate it. Well, I really want to come see what you have done in Washington, D.C. Paul and I went there in 2008. We were in D.C. for um, Obama's inauguration. inauguration. I guess that was 2009. And um, I haven't been there since, and I'm I'm thinking it's time to come back. That would be incredible. 
I would be so honored. Wow, that's wonderful. One of her final lessons in the book that you learned, H, was, and this is nice for me to remember as we close out today, measure your words through faith. Mm. I think I hear that from you when you speak. I feel that from you when you speak. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> and, you know, we've said a lot of uh, Rosa Parks quotes, but we always end with a final quote. And this is one that I really loved. Stand for something or you will fall for anything. Today's mighty mm-hmm. oak is yesterday's nut that held its ground. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you all and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you, thank you, thank you.